Thank you. Thank you very much. And I think that this being St. Patrick's Day, to come out here and share his experience, and I don't really care. I've also heard it said that you can remember the first drink. It was an event. I mean, the short guys like me, the bashful guys who were afraid to ask you. The first night I drank, and I knew I'd had some fun in there, so I knew it was going to and I did. I presume this thing very possibly though. They were close to meeting in the usual manner. But y'all go, I wasn't through. But I got to the point where I think I was saying I didn't jump right into this thing. And I remember very well that I was in a very wonderful business. For anybody who didn't want to drink, I'd get drunk Fridays and Saturdays. Because it wasn't too long. I was working the week in reverse every night of the week. Every night with the guarantee. I don't think I worry about it at this point in time. I was in this business, running around, and I must say, I know, I had, I had early success when I was in, in my mid-twenties. I was drinking, and word was starting to get around, because alcohol doesn't allow you to fulfill your ambition on your tools in life. But I sat back one day, and I decided that here I was running around the country, as I said, I need a responsibility. I needed someone because I needed responsibility. And if I could only have responsibility, that would be the kills me. So I went out and I searched and I found a girl. There's only one thing I Because if she didn't, she wouldn't have had me around. She wouldn't have had me. No one would have had that. I was something like that. About two years after I took from when I took that first, I was introduced to the mall. And something had happened, and I got it, and I just felt hurt. This fellow, a friend of mine, walking through the hotel lobby, came over and he asked me what was happening. And I tried to explain to him. I was just going crazy, and he kind of smiled. He laughed and he told me that I really wasn't going to die from it. All I had was a bad case of a case. And he also told me, but if I went to the bar and had a couple of good stiff drinks, the shakes would go away, and I would, needless to say, I took it as I went to the bar, I had a couple of good stiff drinks, I went into the dining room, I ate a breakfast like a horse, and I kid you not, right? I said, this is wonderful. I never have to be sick from drink again. Because anytime I feel sick, all I've got to do is take a drink, and it goes away. I've also heard that if an alcoholic drinks long enough, shit. I've heard that if an alcoholic drinks long enough, he goes through three stages of this deal of alcoholism. In the first stage, he goes, if he's in the second stage, he drinks not because he wants to drink. And he pursues it further and goes into the third stage. He drinks not because he wants to, so he drinks because he has to. He has no choice after that. I know tonight, as I've known for many, many years, that when I took that morning drink, I went into the second stage of the disease of alcohol. I wasn't taking that drink because I wanted I was taking it because I needed it. I had business to take care of that day. I had rehearsing to do. Things had to be taken care of. And I couldn't have done them in a shaking, shivering mess the way I was. So I took those drinks to quiet myself down, and I was in the second stage. I was taking the drink 
because I knew. I took it back to my wife, my ex-wife. It's common expression in that area. My ex-wife and I, after a while, we sat down, and I'll tell you then, two active alcoholics, both drunk, sit down to make decisions. It's a really something. But we sat down, and we talked, and now we came to another conclusion. It was a business I had to do. That's what. So we decided that I would get out of the business. We would go back to Boston. And we'd get a house. We'd get all the cabins that a regular couple has. And that was going to be the answer. I was going to have responsibility. I was going to have roots. I was going to become an active member of the community. And I kid you not. And, and you know, over the years, I've seen many, many well-intended drunks. Some I've seen naked, some I've seen walled by it. If you're an alcoholic and you continue to drink, you don't stand a chance. Believe me. But we moved back to Boston. We had a very nice home. We had a car. We had the usual shopping. Had a nice house. The only thing is, the people in that neighborhood didn't know it wasn't. And the reason it was in the silence, uh, because by the time we had gotten back to Boston, I had gone into the first stage of the disease. And I wasn't drinking now because I wanted to. And I wasn't drinking now because I needed to. I was drinking because I had to. It was total addiction to alcohol. I went for six months. I didn't work a day. I couldn't. And money was no problem at that time because I had made a lot of money in the business I was in. So I could, we could post for a while, and I would like to give you a typical day in my life like that. I would wake up 6, 30, 7 o'clock in the morning, get so bad at the house. I'd throw something on, and I'd go down to my favorite watering hole, and I'd drink there until the package showed up. And the package showed up, I'd be back home. I'd go home, and by 12, 12 noon, 12.30, I was out like a light in my couch. I'd wake up 4.30, 5 o'clock, I'd be back down to another day. I bring that home, and by 10, 10, 30, it's like that to me. Now, you can't drink like this, and that's, I started getting arrested. And when I woke up in the jail, I wouldn't know why I was there, because I would have gone in in a complete blackout. And I didn't know why I was there, or what I was there for. But when I got before the judge, I would always find that the charge really wasn't that serious. It was drunk enough. I'd been so drunk, I'd passed out on the street, I'm in a gutter somewhere. People were walking over me, and someone had called the cops, and they had taken me in and I went to I also started hitting the hospital. And I kid you not, when I tell you that I can't remember how many hospitalizations I've had, I don't remember. They didn't have treatment centers in those days. They have what we call drying out spots. They take you in seven to ten days. First four days they wean you off the liquor. Next four days they feed you up and send you out. And I would go out and I would drink in another short period of time. Things were just going from bad to worse. Local boy makes good and he is home. I'd like to tell you about one hospitalization I had in that time. I was taken into the Mass General Hospital in Boston. And as they were taking me in, 
I was starting to go into the DTs. And DTs were not new to me. I had them before. I've had alcoholic infections. I've awakened only to find myself. Believe me. I went to that hospital, as I said, and I was going into the DTs. And when I came to, I was in a padded cell. There was no bed. There was just a mattress on the floor. I was nude, except for a sheet that they were thrown over me. And I had welts on my body. When I came to, there were two doctors standing over me. And don't ask me why, but somehow or other, I remembered going in there on a trip. So I looked up at the doctor. And he said, no, today wasn't Friday. Today was Tuesday. And I had been in the violent street too for five days. They had given me up a dead fight. Was all his expression being frightened to death. It's a cliche. Well, this doctor told me that's exactly what had happened. I was half frightened to death of the things I was seeing in a DT. They kept me in this hospital for an extra 10 days or so. Because it's my understanding that after a seizure DT like that, brain damage in the end. So they kept me out of observation. I was in a different wing of the hospital. The side of the door that I was on didn't have any eyes. There were others there with me. And I learned my arts and crafts. I made baskets. I made belts. And I knew that I was in trouble. However, after 10 days, they put me before a couple of psychiatrists and tried to see it okay for me to leave. But before I left the hospital, I had a talk with a very kindly young doctor who had befriended me while I was in there. And he said to me, Eddie, when you leave here, will you please do something about your thinking? He said, because if you don't, one day you've got to come into one of these places and you're not going to leave. He said, you almost didn't leave. So of course I told him I would. It was a long, long walk down to the main street. And as I walked down that walk, the wife had gone and with due cause. I had become a housewrecker. I had started to get physical with her, but she had these cars. The house was gone, the car was gone, and I wasn't really alone. Because by now, I had, I had a thing called fear right in here. I was afraid of the unknown. I was afraid and I didn't know what. And I think that I had that thought awful, <coughs> I had that thought awful feeling that lonesome feeling that I think only an alcoholic can, knowing that I was different and why couldn't I be like the rest of the world. The bottom line was that I hurt. I ate all over inside. And so one day, because I hurt, I knew what it really meant to hurt. But this drink is to be the granddaddy of them all. Because this drink is to take me to the Skid Row, it was to take me to the Skid Row, Boston, where I slept in doorway. I was on Skid Row. And you know, I take issue with people. When I hear them refer to the people in, on Skid Row, when I hear them say the bums on Skid Row, they're not bums. They're human beings, just like we are. And you know what? 95% of them suffer from this again, but the only difference between us and them is out of being arrested one day at a time while they are still active. 
It certainly wasn't a life ambition to have to be there. But tell you how they got there. They got there because they took one drink that set them on a drink. It's outrageous. It's tough. It's tough in there. If you want to know their reactions, too, I can tell you. In your mind's mind. Come with me. But before we go, we'll buy a half a pint of whiskey. And when we get there, we'll find some poor devil who's just rising from the street. And he'll be sick. He'll be sick. And we'll let him finish half of that half pint. And when he finishes it, he'll tell you all about yesterday. He'll tell you who he knows, where he's from. And now that he's told you about yesterday, give it back to him. Because his memory is really slowing up. And when he gets that down, what he's going to do to get out this thing, and how life wasn't really. So now he's told you about yesterday, and he's told you about tomorrow. He can't do anything about it today. It's an endless haze of yesterday and tomorrow. But please don't talk. But one morning, I woke up, and I just couldn't take it any longer. My net worth that morning was a quarter. I had a quarter in my pocket. And that morning, I went to the cabin. I had a 15 cent license last year, so it was a long time ago. And I need money. But that other dime left over. I called home to someone that I hadn't seen. I told her I'd like to come home. She said, if you want to kill yourself with that, and you know, I knew I had gone to the well once too often. Because in the past, whenever I called her, I would get with her encouragement. You know, with things like, you can do it. Things like, try harder, you can do it. But this time, I left that phone booth, that tavern, and I found myself looking up and finding out where the central service was of Alcoholics Anonymous in Boston. I found out where it was. And I walked up there. I went in. And I gotta tell you what I looked like that man. I had holes in my shoes. I had the ass out of my pants. I had about a five days growth beard on my face. And I was shaking so badly I could hardly see hold it. And I walked in. And there was a woman sitting at the desk. And she was by herself. I walked in, and I, walked in and I asked her something that I had never. She told me about the meeting. She told me how you help each other. But I have to tell you that she wasn't too much help. But when she was through, there was a chair sitting back. I asked if I could sit down and get a little warm. Because of I sat in that chair, and I was noticing her speakers, and I heard some leather heels coming down the hallway. And this little guy walked in, and he walked over to her, and they started talking, and I'm looking at this guy, and I said, well, he kept talking to her, and once in a while he would look back at me, you know, and then he talked some more, he looked back at me. I found out later what they were talking about. Incidentally, have you ever been in that condition, or that position, I should say, when you were active? Have you ever been in a room where there's a conversation going on, and you can't hear the conversation, but you know that you're the one being discussed? Well, that's what happened to me that night, that day, I should say. And I found out later what they had been talking about. He had said to her, do you think he's ready? And she said to him, he's right. And that's when I was convinced that you had the biggest bunch of morons and alcoholics anonymous 
that I have ever met in my life. I'm sitting in this chair. I told you, the ass is out of my pants. I got hold of my shoes. The five days old beard. I'm shaking so badly I can't hold a cigarette. And this guy walks over and he stands beside my chair and he says, are you having trouble with alcohol? I said, yeah, I'm having trouble, buddy. But I don't think you can help me. I said, you didn't drink like I drank. He not only went for a ride, but he sat around with me all afternoon and he told me his story. And I know it was the grace of God. When he ended, came there, and he saved me. He sat me down to the dinner table. And after that, he went to his closet, and he took down a bottle of whiskey. And I said, what's with the whiskey? I thought you guys didn't drink. And he very emphatically said to me, I don't. He said, but I'm going to take you to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous tonight, and I want you to hear something. He said, so I'm going to get you, and I'm going to give you a couple of good stiff drinks to quiet your nerves, so that you might be able to hear something else. He said, but you better bear in mind. These are the last drinks. He gave me the drink, and went to the meeting. There was a speaker meeting, there were three speakers. I don't remember what, much of what they said, but I think that night, I had the prime requisite that it takes to become a member. So I'll tell you what I got out of that meeting. It was in the basement of a dimly lit church. When I walked in, they had been hurt by that. And they were so friendly. You see, prior to this, and my drinking was discussed with my family, when it was discussed with the clergy, and when it was discussed with people in the medical system, they told me I was going to die. But you know those people that night, they didn't call me a bum. They didn't say I was a sinner. And they didn't say I was going to die. Instead, they just put that and they said to me, we understand. We understand. Because some of us have been where you are. But they said, we have found a program. We found a program that allows us to stay sober. And we hope you will come along with us. Because we'd like to pass it. After the meeting, my sponsor got a couple of old times, and we hung around, and I was trying the blues about the lost career and the lost house and the wife. And my sponsor, of course, Jerry became my sponsor at Manny Sickney. He looked at me and he said, Eddie, he said, you're just like any, any other drunk I've always known. He said, you're a crybaby. And this was tough love. But I continued to ramble on about this and about that and lost this until there was one old time again. And he said, you know, kid, he said, I've been standing here listening to you cry the blues about this and about that. He said, to hear you talk, you think you have the biggest problems of anyone that ever lived. He said, but you really don't, you know. He said, I want to tell you how big your problem is. Your problem is exactly that. He said, your problem is one ounce of whiskey. And when you learn how to stay away from one ounce of whiskey for one day at a time, you're going to find that your life is safe. And that for me, my sponsor took me down to the flop house, paid the guy the half a dollar for me, he didn't give it to me. Gave the guy the half a dollar for me. And I stayed in that flop house on Sunday night. And then on Monday, I, I moved into the Salvation Army. And I want to tell you something. When you're sleeping, or you're living in the, the uh, Salvation Army, when you're sleeping in a dormitory-like room, with really a 40 other snoring drunks. And you're glad to be there because it's cold outside. You have hit bottom. 
For the next three months, I stayed here for three months, and they were to be the most exciting three months of my life on my survival. Because four or five nights a week, there would be a car that would drive up to that door. That would be my sponsor. I would have two or three other guys in there, and I was starting to learn the ABC of a Mexican giant. Where do you see this kind of stuff? It was about 25 or 30 miles to the meeting, so we'd have conversations back and forth. And they told me that I was suffering. They said I had a mental obsession for alcohol that was too much for me to handle them. And I needed help. Because when I gave in and I took that drink, there was a physical compulsion set up inside my system that demanded more. And see, at once I put that drink in. And then they talked about the spiritual part. And we're not talking religion here now. We're talking sense of value. And I knew what they meant about that too. Because when I was thinking, if I want So I learned again a part with these guys. Sometimes I heard better AA in the car than I heard at the meeting. There was time to talk in the car. Time went on. I didn't drink. I'll never forget in the first few of my days I drank. Before I get to leave the trouble. I wish this was in the end of the year. The year was 1966. And I wish I could tell the stand here tonight. I got drunk again. After some substantial years. And this is what I like to talk to the people who have been around this program. Complacency set in. I no longer made it the most important thing in my life. I was going to meetings, but you never found me sitting up front listening to some good AA. How about the guy BSing with him, the guy who made the call? I wasn't doing any speaking. I hadn't helped another drunk since God knows. I mean, my attitude had become, well, He's sick, but he was taken out of some I wouldn't give him myself. I, of course, had to leave by the door to make sure every pretty girl coming in had a chair. I became the toothmaster of my group. And the sub substance of the whole thing is, is that I was around the program. I would leave meetings early. I would leave after one speaker, especially. Again, I was around it. I was. And so, shock of shock. But I know now. But the slip didn't start. Right? And there was one other thing that haunted me that I could never seem to resolve. You know I'm from Boston. You know I'm Irish. So it comes as no surprise here. And when I went to parochial school, I did not learn. I was taught about the fire and the burning and the torch. And I asked you, how do you turn your will and your life over to care of something Something you don't even know. Something I couldn't do. I couldn't do it with my father. I couldn't do it with many, many people who are talking to me about it. But you know, they say that if you stick around this program long enough, you'll get what you need. And I got what I need. Came in kind of a dramatic way, if you will. But it was quite a few years ago when I was stricken with a very severe heart attack. When I had the heart attack, they put me in there. And that's for a quick EKG. And there was a priest, some of them made it, and there was a priest waiting. All the old tapes out of print. But they strapped me up to all these different machines. And my wife, Carol, was standing at the foot of the bed. And I heard the doctor say to her, where he is, 
Now, you don't have to be a genius to figure out what kind of shape you're in when you hear these words. Akila and Hila, and I said to myself, and I thought of how at the end of the meeting we all stand together and we say the Lord's Prayer. This happens in secret. We say the Lord's Prayer. But I didn't focus in on the Lord's Prayer. I focused in on that particular line in the Lord's Prayer. And it got through to me with great clarity that my will was going to have nothing. It was his will. And I heard, when I realized this, I heard him so right. Because the last thing I did was I turned my head over and fell and I asked God, please give me the strength. I'm very vague on what took place after this, but I'm told that I came to my wife was standing next to her. And she said, I kept looking at her, I kept saying, I haven't been afraid, I wasn't afraid that night, and I haven't been afraid since. Because on that night, I found the God of my understanding. And I would like to make mention of the fact that I didn't find him in the church that I had attended as a young man. I didn't find it in any formalized religion. I found the God of my understanding as a direct result of being a member of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you are new, I hope that you will give a good look at this. Give this program a good Because I have said for many, many years, nobody ends up at a meeting of that alcoholic anonymous. If you're here, thank God that your higher power has directed your feet to the doors of alcoholics anonymous. And it might be that he's trying to tell you something. So please look at over. Please don't make up your mind too fast. If this is an alcoholic, it's a life that you never knew. And I would like to close my story with something that I think, a story that I heard quite some time ago, and I think it's very much helped it all for me. The story about a little boy. He was in a den with his father one night. He looked at his father, he said, Dad, he said, tell me, how big is big? How small is small? How high is high? And how low is low? He started to out and he looked over at him. And there was a picture of the map of the world that had So the father took the picture of the map of the world and he tore it up and he gave it to his little son. He said, son, you know, he said you've asked me some pretty difficult questions. Big, how small is small, how high is He said, here, take this picture of the map of the world that I've torn up and try and put it back together. And I think you'll find it. About four days later, the old man came into the den and there was a picture put back together perfectly. And the father looked at him. He said, my God. He said, how did you ever do it? He said, the picture was put back together perfectly. How did you do it? The kid very proudly looked up at his old man and said, well, Dad. He said, I really don't think it was hard, as hard as you thought it was. He said, because you see, when you picked that picture up and tore it up, he said, I remembered before it was thrown out of the magazine, I remembered that on the reverse side of the picture of the map of the world, there was a picture of a man. He said, you know, Dad, when I realized that, he said, instead of trying to push the whole world back together, and I found out that when the world became all right, 